So, as I said, here we come this morning to a new study in Paul's letter to the Galatians. And the kind of the, the theme, you know, we're studying through the book of Galatians, but our theme as we go through our study in the book of Galatians is going to be free in Christ. And that's really what the book of Galatians is all about. It's about the freedom that we have received in Christ through the gospel, through the grace of God, and we're going to be focusing a lot on that uh, topic. I mean, that's really what the, the book deals with is the revolutionary power of God's grace. So today we're looking at the verses that we read together, verses one through five. And I, first of all, wanted to just give a little bit of background, sort of a introduction to the, the epistle itself, and then we'll move into looking at the text. But as we note here, this is the epistle of Paul, uh, the apostle to the Galatians. It's written to the churches of Galatia. Galatia was a Roman province in what is today Turkey. Uh, the region was named after the Celtic tribes that settled there from the area known as Gaul. The ancient area of Gaul is modern-day France. And so it was to, to this region that Paul went with Barnabas on their first missionary journey. They came to the cities of Pisidian, Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, Derby, and it was there that they planted a number of churches. And so it would be to these churches that Paul is now writing. Uh, the occasion of the letter was unfortunately unpleasant. Uh, and, and what had happened there is Paul had come in, he had brought them the good news of the gospel, they had embraced. Uh, the wonderful grace of God. But then after Paul's departure, false teachers came. And the false teachers began to undermine uh, Paul. They began to suggest that he really wasn't truly an apostle, that he didn't really have uh, apostolic authority. And they also challenged his, his doctrine, his doctrine being mainly that salvation is by grace alone through faith alone. And um, these false teachers who came in to, to challenge the teaching of Paul, uh, they're commonly referred to as Judaizers. And the reason for that is they, they, did, they didn't believe that you could really be saved apart from be, being a Jew. So the Jews, of course, had the natural end, but the Gentiles, they insisted, needed to become Jews if they were going to be saved. So they had to, they had to go through the circumcision rite, and they had to keep the law of Moses, and this is what they came and imposed upon uh, the, the people there in the churches of Galatia. So Paul writes this letter in defense of both his apostleship and doctrine. And as we go through the letter, we're going to see how he uh, masterfully shows the fallacy of the false teachers, disproving their uh, teaching from the scriptures themselves. And he also shows the foolishness of those who have followed their teaching. At one certain point, he even says to them, he says, oh, foolish Galatians, who has cast a spell on you? 
And so this is what's happening here, the background of the epistle. Now, Galatians is interesting in that it is very much a doctrinal epistle, but it also has an, a component, uh, a historical component to it, a narrative. And the first two chapters of Galatians are historical narrative. And in the first two chapters of Galatians, we learn things uh, that, that happened in the life and ministry of Paul that are not recorded for us in the book of Acts. Now, we often think of the book of Acts as being the complete um, sort of historical perspective on the things that happened in the early church. But from what we read in Galatians chapter one and two, we realize that, oh, there were other things that went on that Luke didn't tell us about in Acts. In the New Testament, we have the epistle of Paul to Titus. But Titus is not mentioned anywhere in the book of Acts, but it's here in Galatians 1 and 2 that we find out a lot about who Titus was and his relationship with Paul. So there's that narrative portion of it, but then the content is uh, primarily doctrinal, and it is very similar in its doctrinal content to Paul's epistle to the Romans. And like Romans, Galatians played a significant role in the history of the church, especially in what we know as the um, Reformation of the 16th century. The Reformation of the 16th century, if you're not really familiar with that, that was when there was a rediscovery, really, of, of the gospel of God's grace. And the names, the most prominent names that surround the Reformation are uh, Martin Luther and John Calvin. But it was through... Paul's epistles to both the Romans and the Galatians that the reformers uh, really rediscovered the grace of God and brought this great truth of salvation by grace alone through faith alone uh, back into prominence after approximately 1,200 years of obscurity. Think about that. For 1,200 years, the church to a, lot, to a, a large degree lost the, the understanding of God's grace and salvation through grace and, and the Christian life through grace. I mean, can you imagine how could, it's almost inconceivable that the, the thing that is the very theme of the New Testament, which is grace, was lost to a large degree for 1,200 years. But it was through the influence of the epistle to the Galatians that... Um, this was restored during the time of the Reformation. So Galatians is important for us today because an understanding of the grace of God is vital to a healthy and spiritually prosperous Christian life. Look, this is the most important, and like I said, it's the primary doctrine of the New Testament. So if we don't get grace the way God intends it to be gotten, we're not going to be living the Christian life the way God intends it to be lived. And we're not going to be enjoying the blessings and the benefits of it that God has for us. Uh, Timothy Keller in his uh, commentary on the book of Galatians, he said this, he said, the book of Galatians is dynamite. It is an explosion of joy and freedom which leaves us enjoying a deep significance, security and self-satisfaction the life of blessing God calls his people into. And, I, and I'm praying as we go through Galatians together that it is indeed just that, that it's dynamite. 
uh, that it blows up all of our preconceived ideas and our uh, legalistic bent that we often are um, caught up in and, and just frees us once again in God's grace. You see, because it's possible to be a Christian It's possible to have been a Christian for many, many years and to still not have really experienced God's grace. You you believe in God's grace and you, you know, to a certain degree you understand it, but it's possible to not have fully experienced it. And uh, that, of course, was the testimony of Pastor Chuck. He, of course, grew up in a Christian home and he pretty much, you know, didn't really have a point where he could look back and say, well, it was at this time that I became a Christian. He sort of just his entire life, uh, you know, he had been brought up as a Christian. He was a Christian, but uh, by his own admission and his own story, his own testimony was that for so many years, not only as a Christian, but even as a pastor, he never really understood God's grace. And there was a time, there was a, uh, a moment a defining moment in his own life where suddenly the lights went on and he understood God's grace. And later on in life, he would write his his book, which was really sort of his testimony. And and in some ways, just, you know, kind of the, the whole emphasis of his ministry. And perhaps you remember the book is called Why Grace Changes Everything. And that, that's what grace does. It changes everything. And that's what this epistle to the Galatians is going to do for us if we take it to heart. So that is our introduction. And now let's just jump in. We're going to look at the, the first five verses. We read them together, but I'll read them over again. And so it begins with Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead and all the brethren who are with me to the churches of Galatia. So Paul begins this letter by claiming for himself the very title which the false teachers were evidently denying him. Paul says, actually, I am an apostle. They were questioning Paul's uh, apostleship. They were trying to cast doubt in the minds of the uh, Galatian believers as to the legitimacy of Paul's apostleship. Uh, Because remember, Paul wasn't part of that original apostolic band. When you go through the gospels, of course, you find that Jesus uh, selected 12 men to be his apostles. We know one of them was a traitor, Judas Iscariot. Um, But these that were with Jesus, they they were with him during his public ministry. And of course, he would send them out on the, the great commission to make disciples of all of the nations. Paul wasn't part of that originally. He came later. So these false teachers tried to capitalize on that. Oh, Paul, you know, who is this guy? I mean, you know, why, why should we consider him an apostle? He wasn't part of that original band. This is how they would present it. But Paul here makes it clear that he is an apostle. And an apostle is one who is sent. That's what the word means. One who is sent. One who is sent by higher authority. Paul says that he is an apostle. And it's not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. So Paul says, in a sense, he's saying, no, yeah, it's true. I I wasn't part of that original apostolic band. And none of those men appointed me to be an apostle Paul says, God himself appointed me to be an apostle. And, you know, this is really a a truth that we need to kind of, you know, understand. 
God appoints people to Christian leadership. God gives gifts. And uh, sometimes for some people, uh, that might not be recognized, sometimes even in, in the early stages. There was a, a very well-known, um, became very well-known, a British preacher. His name was G. Campbell Morgan. And uh, Campbell Morgan, you know, really, really felt called to the ministry. And so he applied uh, for ministry with the Methodist Church. This is back in the uh, late 1800s. And uh, he failed in his application. And they actually put on his uh, application for ministry, they, they put rejected. And he, of course, was dejected because they had put rejected. And he wrote to his father, notifying him that he had been rejected for the ministry. And his father wrote back and he said this, he said, rejected on earth, but chosen in heaven. And this man went on to be one of the great Bible expositors of the, the uh, 19th and 20th century. And so you see, sometimes as, as was in the case with Paul, there was a, a bit of a reluctance to embrace him as an apostle, but Jesus had chosen him and appointed him. And of course, ultimately his life and his letters, um, they, they make that clear. So he's an apostle, not from men, nor by man. Now, as an apostle, And just for the record, the apostles themselves, and Paul in particular, um, like the prophets of the Old Testament, they were not expressing their personal opinions about God. They were speaking on God's behalf. Therefore, to reject what the apostle said is to reject what God has said. Now, why do I say that? Because we're living in a time and, and this, is, this happens over and over again throughout church history, but you have times where it sort of has a resurgence. And we're living in a time now where there is a resurgence of this kind of thinking that, well, you know, the apostles and particularly Paul, uh, if we don't agree with him, we just dismiss what he says and just kind of say, well, you know, we don't, have to, we don't have to listen to what Paul said because Jesus didn't say that. And we're only going to listen to what Jesus said. And so there's, there has been, this has happened over and over again, but it's, become, it's becoming kind of common again to sort of pit Jesus against Paul. And uh, I saw this past week that uh, someone who's been known in evangelical circles for years, always been, you know, sort of, sort of a bit liberal, um, but now, you know, ha has come out very boldly on behalf of same-sex marriage and so forth. And he refers to himself as a red-letter Christian. Uh, so what is a red-letter Christian? A red-letter Christian is a person who says, well, unless Jesus said it, I, I'm not going to buy it. So if, it, it doesn't matter what Paul said. It doesn't matter what Paul said about doctrine. It doesn't matter what Paul said about morality. If Jesus didn't say it, then uh, I'm not going to accept it. So they're, they're a red-letter Christian. The thing I've noticed interesting about the red-letter Christians, they actually uh, only uh, accept certain of the red letters. There are things that Jesus said that they don't like either. And they would say, well, that, you know, that shouldn't be in red letters. You know, that, that they made a mistake there. They used the wrong ink, but, uh, 
Listen, what Paul said is what Jesus said. What the apostle said is what Jesus said. There's no, there's, Jesus has, don't take this as, as being blasphemous. Jesus has no more authority than the apostles. Jesus gave them the authority. That's the whole point. And of course, Jesus is the living word of God. He imparts to these apostles the authority to speak on his behalf. That's what they are. They're apostles. They're sent by him. They're given authority from a higher power, from God himself. So for those today who would suggest um, well, you know, uh, the Old Testament doesn't matter. Uh, the epistles of Paul don't matter. All that matters is what Jesus said. Uh, those people have a very distorted understanding of what the Bible says about itself. Uh, the Bible makes clear, Jesus made it clear himself that the scriptures are themselves the authority and the scriptures cannot be broken. And so Paul goes on and he says in verse three, grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Paul opens all of his epistles with the same uh, salutation. The only difference is when he writes to Timothy and Titus, he just includes the word mercy. But generally, it's grace and peace. And these were the common greetings of the day. Grace, charis, the Greek word, uh, favor, God's favor, and peace. The Hebrew uh, term shalom would come to mind. But it was more than that. It was more than just the common greeting of the day because notice Paul says, uh, grace and peace to you from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. So it's interesting that here in, in this salutation, what the apostle is actually doing is he's letting us know in advance that what he's about to say is coming to us from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He's not saying grace and peace to you from me. He's not saying grace and peace to you from the, the folks who are with me. He's not saying grace and peace to you from the other churches. He's saying grace and peace to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So in that, he's actually sort of indirectly claiming to speak now for God. So the grace and peace in the New Testament epistles is really the New Testament version of thus says the Lord that we find frequently in the Old Testament. So in the Old Testament, the prophets would speak and they would preface what they were about to say with thus says the Lord, or they would finish what they said with thus says the Lord. So everybody understood that it was God that was speaking through them. So here in all of these epistles, we find this kind of, uh, of an introduction and a salutation. Now, verse four is where we really want to focus today. So in verse four, and then of course, five is just the ending of the fourth verse. So who gave himself, speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from this present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever, amen. So in verse four, we see three things. Number one, the nature of Christ's death. Number two, the object of Christ's death. And number three, the origin of Christ's death. So first of all, the nature of the death of Christ. The nature of the death of Christ is primarily a sacrifice for sin. You see, Christ's death was not primarily a demonstration of God's love, though it was that. It was that for sure, but it wasn't that primarily. Why do I say that? Because once again, we're living in a time where people want to really 
focus on the love of God, which is good, but you can't focus on the love of God to the exclusion of the holiness of God, which means that sin has to be dealt with. And sin had to be dealt with through a sacrifice. Atonement had to be made. A life had to be given for the sins that were committed. And and once again, in our time, this is something that is unpopular. There's, like I said, there's much talk about God's love. And, And God's love is a great thing to talk about because it's true. God does love us. And he did demonstrate his love for us through the death of Christ. But we have to remember that it wasn't simply a demonstration of his love. The death of Christ was making a payment for our sins. So the nature of the death of Christ was first and foremost a sacrifice for sin. We cannot lose sight of that. Secondly, the object was to deliver. The word can also be translated rescue to deliver or rescue us from this present evil age. So this is also what happened through the death of Christ, that for those who receive him, that we are rescued from this present evil age. We are, we are pulled out of it in a sense, and we'll talk more about that in a moment. But then the third thing is the origin of the death of Christ is in the will of God the Father. And again, we sometimes have confusion. People think, well, you know, Jesus, uh, the New Testament God, he's the nice, gracious God. The Old Testament God is the, the angry God, the wrathful God. And so Jesus steps in. God really wants to destroy everybody, but Jesus steps in and talks them out of it. And he, you know, take, takes the, the brunt of things for us. And, uh, but, but the whole picture is that um, you know, God, God the Father is a wrathful, vengeful God. But here we're told that the origin of the sacrifice of Christ is the will of God the Father. And of course, this is what John 3.16 says, for God so loved the world. Jesus died as a sacrifice for sin because of God's love for the world. And the Bible is clear that the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all harmoniously working together for man's redemption. The father planned it, the son executed it, and the Holy Spirit applies it. And so there's no, um, like, like we said, there's no pitting Jesus against Paul, and there's certainly no pitting uh, God the Father against God the Son. Our salvation originated in the will of God the Father. But now we want to come back, and I want to focus today on the object of this uh, salvation that came through the death of Christ. And as we said, it is to deliver or rescue us from this present evil age. And so let me quote to you from John Stott. He said, the Bible divides history into two ages, this age and the age to come. It tells us that the age to come has come already because Christ inaugurated it, although this present age has not yet finally passed away. So the two ages are running their course in parallel. They overlap one another. Christian conversion means being rescued from the old age and being transferred into the new age, the age to come. And here's the key sentence. And the Christian life is living in this present evil age, the life of the age to come. 
And thus, the title of our message today, The Life of the Age to Come. That's what we wanna talk about because this is what Jesus came to do in delivering us from this evil age. He doesn't take us out of the world, right? We're still here. So what does it mean that he delivered us from it? Well, he has saved us. He's, he's brought us to himself and he's given us the experience of the life of the age to come. We get to live that life of the age to come in this present world. And so because we are called to experience this life of the age to come, that will translate itself into us who are still living in the present evil age, living radically different than the way the rest of the world is living. And so that is going to be the, the, the mark of those who are uh, the followers of Christ. We're gonna have a life that is distinct. It doesn't mean we're gonna dress differently. It doesn't mean we're going to you know, eat different kind of food. It doesn't mean that we're necessarily going to be entertained by different things, although obviously it would apply there to some degree. Uh, but, but it's not those kinds of things that we're talking about. It's just, it's talking about a life uh, that is centered in the things of the spirit, a life that has a quality beyond anything that you could ever find in this present evil age. It is the life of the age to come. And I would define the life of the age to come in this way, living in the freedom that comes from living in the fullness of God's grace. That's the big picture point living in the freedom that comes from living in the fullness of God's grace. Listen, the more you understand God's grace, the more you live in God's grace, guess what? The freer you are. The freer you are. And the, the freer you are, the more joy you have, the more love you have, the more hope you have. All of those things come along with the freedom. And so that's why we're, uh, you know, our theme for our study of Galatians is, is free in Christ. We have to understand we're free in Christ. And so I want to just take a look at a few things that we are freed from. And so this will be just kind of a, a, a little bit of an overview of the content of the epistle, not entirely, but just a few things. And we'll look at all these things in much more detail as we make our way through the epistle. But first of all, as we're talking about living in the freedom that comes from living in the fullness of God's grace, we're talking about freedom from the bondage to sin. Freedom from the bondage to sin. Sin is our enemy. Sin is not our friend. Sin is that destructive force. Sin is that thing that is, that is ruining life, ruining everybody's lives. And Jesus came to free us from bondage to sin. So we no longer have to live under the dominion of sin. We no longer have to live in the grip of sin that is de destroying our lives. In chapter 5, verses 19 through 21, Paul lists a number of things that he says are manifestations of the flesh. He says that those who, who habitually practice these things will not, uh, in the end, uh, partake of the kingdom of God, but this is what he speaks of. He speaks of adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outburst of wrath, selfish ambition, dissension, heresy, envy, murder, drunkenness, revelries, and the like. 
So these are the kinds of things, when we're talking about sin, these are the things that Christ came to free us from these things. Every single thing in this list will destroy you. That's what it will do. It will wreck your life. It will wreck the lives of people around you. It's an offense to God. And Jesus came to set us free from bondage to these things. But also, he came to set us free from the need for the world's approval. That leads to idolatry, which also leads us then into sin. You know, how often are people doing things because they're seeking the approval of their peers or they're seeking the approval of some, somebody in uh, the culture or, you know, just maybe the culture in general or whatever. And as they're seeking that approval, they're really idolizing that thing and they're, they're living out their lives uh, based on what people think about them and they're engaging sometimes in the behavior that they're engaging in because, well, this is what the world is saying to do if you want to be accepted and all of that. But, but Christ frees us from that because Christ gives us a, an identity in him that brings me to a place where I, I don't really have to worry about what the world thinks of me anymore. I don't have to live up to somebody else's expectation or standard. I am fulfilled and complete in Christ, and, and I'm delivered from that bondage that is so often placed upon me. So freedom from the bondage to sin. Secondly, there's freedom from legalism and bondage to religious rituals. Now, the interesting thing about Galatians is Galatians is more about the second point than it is about the first point. Even though it's referenced, the first point is referenced, the, the majority of the epistle to the Galatians is not really dealing with the sins of the flesh so much as we would think of them, like Paul just listed them there, but the, the majority of Galatians is dealing with, with sins that manifest themselves in religious ritual and legalism. Now, sometimes it's even hard for us to conceive that that is sin. But this is the very thing that Paul was fighting against. These Judaizers didn't come into town and say, hey, you guys, Paul's wrong. You can fornicate all you want. Paul's wrong. You can go out and drink as much as you want. You know, don't listen to what Paul said. No, they came in and said, Paul's wrong. Jesus isn't enough. The gospel isn't enough. God's grace isn't enough. You need to be more religious. That's what they said. And that's what Paul was fighting against. And for us, that's sometimes almost like, it's like our brains can't even go there because we sometimes think just like they did. We think, well, of course, God wants me to be more religious. And so we end up finding ourselves in bondage to legalism and in bondage to religious ritual. And so Paul says to the Galatians in 4, 9, and 10, he says, but now after you have known God, or rather are known by him, how is it that you turn again to the weak and beggarly elements to which you desire again to be in bondage? You observe days and months and seasons and years. What's the matter with you? That's what he's saying. Then he goes on, he says, stand fast therefore in the liberty by which Christ has made us free and do not be entangled again in a yoke of bondage. And the yoke of bondage that he's talking about there is bondage to religious, ritual, and legalistic uh, ideas about things. And so 
we will inevitably talk much about that in our study because this is pretty much the primary issue. And even though, this is a very common thing, even though we might be part of a church that emphasizes grace or part of a movement that emphasizes grace or, or we believe in our heads about the grace of God, it's easy, it's one of the easiest things in the world to drift into legalism. And when, when drifting into legalism, you know what that looks like. It, it really comes down to we start adding to what God said. And we start putting up a standard of righteousness that exceeds the standard that God put up. And then inevitably, we start judging everybody by that standard. That's exactly what the Pharisees did. The Pharisees put up a higher standard than God had put up. And then they judged everybody that didn't live up to their standard. And we sometimes can do the same thing. So our study of Galatians will bring us, through our growing in grace, it'll bring us freedom from legalism and bondage to religious ritual. And then there's also freedom from racial and cultural division. As we study through this book, we're gonna see that those were some of the problems. There was racial conflict in the church in Galatia because there was this idea among the Jews that they, they kind of had a superiority complex. They thought they were better than the Gentiles. And that brought division. And then there was a cultural division. There was the, again, the Hebrew culture that, that saw itself as superior to the Hellenistic culture. And so you had this racial and cultural division that developed there. But Paul says in chapter three, verse 28 of Galatians, he says, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And you see, when we grow in God's grace, all of those things that would naturally perhaps divide us, all of those things are done away with. And racial issues and cultural things, they're no longer the thing. We, we don't let that get in the way of, of love and of fellowship and, and those things. We allow for cultural distinctions, obviously, but we, we don't make a big deal over them. And of course, the racial thing, we just blow that completely out of the water because there's not any basis for any division regarding that whatsoever. So freedom from racial and cultural division, and then... Fourthly, freedom from judgmentalism and a critical spirit. Listen, there is so much judgmentalism in the church today and, and such a critical spirit. It is unbelievable. It is, it, it's just, you know, but, but here's what it says. It says we have a bunch of immature Christians because you know what? The more you grow in grace, the less judgmental and critical you become. That's the reality. And again, Paul addresses that to the Galatians. He said, for you, brethren, have been called to freedom. Only do not use freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For all the laws fulfilled in one word, even in this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, beware lest you be consumed by one another. Paul is describing here what happens when people develop a judgmental and a hypercritical spirit. You bite and devour and consume one another. 
And, you know, it's almost like uh, in, in the body of Christ today, you can see this biting and devouring and, and consuming. And it really is uh, quite astounding how uh, much vitriol there is from Christians toward other Christians who, uh, you know, maybe there, there's a disagreement. Has anybody ever heard of the idea of agreeing to disagree agreeably? When it comes to non-essential things, I'm not talking about essentials of the faith, but when it comes to non-essentials, you know, people are going to see things a little bit differently and we, we need to be gracious toward one another and not hateful. And, you know, it, but, but it is, it's just crazy. But like I said, to me, it's just indicative of the fact that we, even though we give lip service to grace, we've largely lost sight of the grace of God. And because, you know, if you're growing in grace and if you're filled with grace, guess how that's going to translate into your life? It's going to translate into graciousness. You're going to be gracious. You're going to give people the benefit of the doubt. You're not going to be swift to run, to judge and to condemn and so forth, especially before you get all of the facts, which so often uh, people are doing these days. So, and then fifthly and finally, And as we're talking about here, living in the freedom that comes from living in the fullness of God's grace, there is the freedom in the spirit to walk in love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. So the Galatians, here they are. Paul comes to town. He brings the gospel. These people are Gentiles. They're heathens. They're idol worshipers. And they hear this great news of God's love and mercy and grace through Jesus who died for their sins. And Paul says, you just need to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. And they all embraced that. And it was glorious. It was wonderful. It was amazing. And they had this experience of joy and they had this experience of love and they had this experience of of, of unity and, and hope and all of those things. And then... What happened? False teaching comes to town. False teachers come to town. False teaching sets in. And they become hyper-religious and hyper-critical and judgmental. And pretty soon, it's all ruined. Paul says, you know, what happened to you? And at one point, he says, who bewitched you? Who cast a spell on you? And, and, you know, his own personal experience, he says, there was a time when you, your love for me was so strong. Here in Galatians, he says, you would have plucked out your own eyes and give them to me. This is where we get the idea that Paul had an eye disease. They said, there's, Paul said, there was a time when you would have plucked out your own eyes and given them to me. What happened? How did everything change? You see, they went from loving Paul and appreciating Paul and, oh, Paul's our father in the faith and he brought us to the gospel to questioning Paul's apostleship, to questioning his doctrine. They came to a place where they felt like, well, Paul just, he doesn't really know. We know, we know the truth. They became lifted up with pride and and it just, it ruined everything. Grace changes everything for the good, Legalism ruins everything. That, that's, that's really what it does. It'll ruin your life. It'll ruin your experience. And it'll really just make your environment miserable. Because you're just judging everybody and you're critical of everything. 
And, you know, it's like, it's like a disease. And we've got to resist that. And, and the, the antidote to the disease is grace. We've got to grow in God's grace. And that's what we're going to do as we go through Galatians. So we're rescued by the death of Christ from this present evil age so we can go on, move forward, live the life of the age to come, life in the fullness of God's grace. That's what we're talking about. And listen, we want to see a great work of God's spirit. We want to see, we talk about a revival, an outpouring of the spirit of God. And you know what that really is? That is an outpouring of God's grace. And it's a revolutionary thing. You know, grace is so revolutionary because it, it sweeps through a culture, it sweeps through a community, and it brings in all kinds of people that quite often the religious people would never give the time of day to or let in the door of their churches. That's happened over and over. It didn't just happen in the 60s here. It's happened over and over again in the history of the church. It's an outpouring of God's grace, and quite often it's too radical for religious people. They can't handle it. Wait, no, God can't save people like that. It just doesn't you know, fit with our theology. But God does save people. And then sometimes it's, it's like, well, you know, God hasn't saved them enough for me. I'm not comfortable yet with them. You know, they, they need to be more saved than they are. Because grace doesn't only save us, it sanctifies us. And because it's grace, it's patient with our sanctification process. But a lot of times we're not patient with the sanctification process. We want to see people sanctified overnight. Of course, as long as it's not us, but we want everybody else to be sanctified overnight, right? We want to give room for our own little pet sins, but we don't really want there to be any patience or, or grace extended to other people's issues. So Galatians is revolutionary because it's about the gospel of grace. And my prayer is that as we go through it, and you know, I, I'll just, you know, speaking candidly, I was really wrestling with, you know, where do we go? And, uh, you know, we've got Christmas coming up and, you know, we've got the holiday thing. I thought, oh, maybe we'll do something, you know, sort of leading into Christmas. And I had one thought at a point to preach through the life of Christ. And, but in the back of my mind, they're just, Galatians kind of just kept coming up. And finally, a couple of days ago, I just felt like the Lord said, this is, this is where I want you to go. So here we are, and this is where we'll be for a season, and I trust that God's gonna use this epistle in our lives to renew us in his grace, and of course, as that happens to us personally, it's going to affect us collectively, and it's gonna be a great thing all the way around. So, Lord, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for the radical nature of it. We thank you, Lord, that you have rescued us from this present evil age so we can live the life of the age to come. And Lord, may we not settle for a religious life merely, a moral life merely, but Lord, nothing less than the life filled with your grace. So Lord, refresh us, renew us in your grace as we study through this epistle. Lord, may it have the impact that you intend. And we think back in history, Lord, how it was, it was your word that brought about a spiritual revolution in the 1500s that is still going on today. 
And Lord, may it do that as well again. And of course, Lord, it did it originally in Galatia there until it was briefly lost. But help us, Lord, to once again experience for ourselves personally your great and glorious grace. May we understand that the gospel is not just what gets us saved. It's all the implications of the gospel that cause us to grow into all the fullness of what you have for us. So Lord, root us afresh in the gospel, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.